Hebrews chapter 1, part 2, and Hebrews chapter 2, part 1. First Exhortation. The third talk in a series on the book of Hebrews was presented by Jack Crabtree on October 12, 2014, at Reformation Fellowship. The copyright for this recording is held by Gutenberg College, Inc., 2014. Gutenberg College is a non-profit organization, and contributions may be made at www.gutenberg.edu. This material may be copied and distributed in whole for non-commercial and educational purposes, subject to the inclusion of this introduction. All other rights reserved. Handout number one. Translation. Installment one. Accompanies this talk. Okay, we're in the book of Hebrews. So far, just a brief review. I'm arguing that the book of Hebrews was written by Paul, as far as we know. I see no reason to challenge that. was written by Paul to Jewish believers during the, sometime during the first century. Jewish believers who had initially been convinced that Jesus was the Messiah by the reports of his resurrection and perhaps his miracles and, and various things that convinced them that this was a man sent from God. This was an unusual man, so they bought it. He's the Messiah. They had certain expectations about what belief in the Messiah would bring them, and they were sorely disappointed. Instead of whatever blessing they thought may follow from their belief in God's Messiah, they got prison, they got killed, they got ripped off, they got dealt with unjustly with no social protection. All kinds of persecution happened in their lives. And over the years and even decades, they grew weary. You get tired of being persecuted. And as they grew weary, there were some unresolved intellectual questions that had just got stuck on the back burner and kind of shoved aside and not really thought about. But whenever you're not sure you want to believe any longer, then those intellectual questions that you've left unresolved begin to flood in and become important, become significant to you again. And the significant intellectual question that Paul deals with in the book of Hebrews is, how can an ordinary mortal human being be the Messiah? That makes no sense to first century Judaism. The Messiah is not going to be just like one of us. He's not going to be an ordinary human being. He's going to be in some way supernatural in a way that you and I are not. And what I went on to argue is we run into this word angelos several times in the first two chapters of Hebrews. And although it gets translated angel, I think in this context what they're thinking of is a theophany. So it's like the angelos of Yahweh in the burning bush on Mount Sinai. It's like the angelos of Yahweh who led the people of Israel through the wilderness as a pillar of fire by night and a pillar of cloud by day. It's that, what usually gets translated, the angel of the Lord. But the angel of the Lord is not an angel. The angel of the Lord is a theophany, a manifestation, visible manifestation of Yahweh himself appearing to mankind. So apparently, one strand of Judaism in the first century believed that when the Messiah came, the Messiah that God was going to send into the world, or the Son that God was going to send in the world, was going to be a theophany, was going to be a visible manifestation of God himself coming in the form of a human being. But he wasn't going to like be a human being. 
That's crazy. That just makes no sense. So what Paul has, and they've never resolved that. Why would God send his Messiah into the world and die? Why would he send a mortal human being into the world as his Messiah and get himself killed by the Romans? That's not very Messiah-like. That can't possibly be God's Messiah, the one that that happened to. So that question comes flooding back as they grow wearier and wearier and wearier of the persecution that they're undergoing. And it's at that point that Paul writes the book of Hebrews. And he's writing the book of Hebrews to do two things, to encourage them from several different angles, hang in there, stay the course, don't give up, because the stakes are high. We're talking life and death here. We're talking about eternal destruction versus existence in the eternal kingdom of God. That's what's being weighed in the balance. So hang in there. Don't give up on this. And then secondly, he spends a significant part of the book arguing the case, ex- explaining how is it that it makes sense that God sent his son into the world to die at the hands of the Romans? Why does that make any sense? Okay, we start off where we started last week in the very, very first exhortation. And the very first exhortation is really, really quite simple. And I, I want to finish the exhortation today. We may not have any more time than that. I'm going to kind of skip over the middle section where he argues, and we'll look at that next week. But I want to look at the exhortation itself. He starts off, God, having spoken in past times in many portions and in many ways to the fathers through the prophets, has in the last days, in the last of these days, spoken to us through the Son. So throughout our history, the history of our people, God has sent prophets, and those prophets have spoken to us as a people and revealed all kinds of different pieces of information about what God has promised and what he's purposing and what he's going to do. We never got the full picture from those prophets. We just got bits and snatches of it. And it came in a variety of different ways and a variety of different fragments. And But now, in these last days, he sent his son to speak to us. So Jesus, the son... He doesn't call him Jesus here, but it's very clear in the book of Hebrews that that, that's who he's talking about. Jesus, whom he identifies as the Son, is the one who came and put the pieces together, gave us the last missing pieces to the puzzle, organized the puzzle in such a way that we finally have a coherent picture of what it is that God is up to and, and how he's up to us. That's what he's done in these last days. He has taught us through this one that he calls his son. And then skipping down, I think it's verse 3 in your Bible, or it's at the end of sentence 1 in my translation, even supporting everything that the son did by the divinely powerful utterance spoken by him. And what did God do? God had Jesus back. So this same one who was declaring the gospel of salvation to us was saying things like, to a blind man see, and to a deaf man hear, and to the wind and the waves shut up, and they shut up. And God had Jesus back so that when Jesus said such things, God performed a miracle. God made the blind see, the deaf hear, the dead rise, the nature obey him. All kinds of spectacular, wonderful things followed from Jesus' touch, 
his spoken word, his spoken command, and God, who had his back, acted in such a way to say to all of mankind, when this guy speaks, he's speaking with my authority. Listen to him. He knows what he's doing. He's making true claims, true claims that have their source in me. I wouldn't be performing these miracles if I didn't think so. So he's God is supporting everything that this man Jesus said by the divinely powerful utterance of Jesus. Jesus' utterance ends up being divinely powerful. Why? Because it's God supporting what Jesus is saying. And then we looked last week at the parenthesis there. He spoke to us through his son, and then he he describes this son in three different ways. The one whom he appointed heir of all things. Who is this man, Jesus? He's the one who's going to inherit the entire cosmos. He's going to reign as king over all of reality one day. This man, this ordinary human mortal, is going to be be given authority. The very authority that inherently belongs to God himself is going to be delegated to, embodied in, and invested in this man, Jesus. That's his destiny. He appointed him to be heir of all things. He's the one with a view to whom God, in fact, made the ages, history, the whole history of reality. Why has reality gone the way it's gone? Why does it look the way it looks? Why has what's happened happened? Because it's all intended to point and find its resolution in Jesus as its king, Jesus as its Lord, the Lord of history, the king of history, the the protagonist of this incredible narrative that God is creating through cosmic history. It's all with a view to bringing the right kind of honor and glory to the Son, that everything that happens, happens. And then finally, he's a breaking forth or a shining forth of the glory, what he just calls the glory. And I think what he has in mind is what rabbis called the Shekinah glory, the literally, physically shining, bright presence of God in the Holy of Holies, in the tabernacle, in the wilderness. Well, that shining physical representation of God and his presence disappeared in the middle of the history of Israel at one point. The text just quietly says, and it departed. And to my knowledge, it never came back until Jesus came. When Jesus came, we have one more time the shining presence of God, if you will, the the shining glory of God coming back to be among us in our very presence, in our very midst. In the wilderness, God lived in a tent just alongside all the other tents that the Israelites lived in. With Jesus, we have a human being living among human beings who's the very embodiment of Yahweh himself. So he dwelt among us. As John puts it in the first chapter of John, he tabernacled, he tented among us. I think that's what he has in mind here as well. The shining forth of God's glory, God's wonderful presence. And who is this man? He's the stamp of the very identity of Yahweh. The concept that really helps me is the concept of mapping. You know, a map is when you, you take a point over here. If you had two big circles, one big circle here and one little tiny circle over here, you take a point off of this circle and have it represented by a point in this circle. And the the wonder and mystery of mapping is 
how can every point in this circle be represented by every point in this circle, and this is smaller, right? Well, in mapping, you're just taking what is and representing it with something else. Well, I think that's what Paul is getting at here by calling him the stamp, the very stamp, the very character of the hypostasis of God. He's the very stamp of God's individual personal identity. Jesus just is Yahweh. But he's Yahweh in the form and the medium of a human life. This man, Jesus, is Yahweh. Just as we can take a computer chip, and we can take something that's completely intangible, completely immaterial, completely non-physical, an idea in the head of a computer programmer, and, and nothing but an idea, it's completely abstract, and we can map that algorithm onto physical, a, a physically existing object, a computer chip. Completely different medium. This is not an algorithm. This is silicon and metal of some kind. That's all it is. But it's silicon and metal put together in such a way that this algorithm gets represented effectively and successfully by this material object. Jesus is the mapping of God and his personal identity onto the concrete physical material existence of a human being and a human life. That's God but it's a human being who is God. It's a representation of God by a human being. And thus Paul elsewhere can write, he's the image of the invisible God. Or as John writes in the first chapter of John, he's the translation. No one has beheld God at any time, but the monogamous son, he has translated him. Jesus is the translation of an otherwise unknowable God into a medium, a human life, that we can understand, that we have access to, that we can relate to. We know how to interpret a human life. How do you interpret a transcendent author who's completely beyond all of reality? But a human being I can understand. So if we want to know God, we look at Jesus, the translation of God into the form of a human being. I think that's exactly what he's saying here. He's the stamp of his particular personal identity. Okay, so this is the son who in these last days has spoken to us. This is not just a great teacher. This is not just a great man. This is not just a, a rabbi with one opinion among many. This is the one who is the stamp of God's very identity, the one through whom all of history, for whom all of history was created, the one who is the heir of all of reality. That's who we're talking about, who came among us and spoke to us and put the picture together for us, gave us the missing pieces and organized them in such a way that now we know, now we know the way to life and the life that God had in store for us from the get-go, from the very beginning. How does one access that life? How does one qualify for that life? Who's going to go to that life? Jesus told us. He taught us. Okay. Well, what about this one whose teaching was supported by God by making Jesus' utterances and his touch and his very commands divinely powerful? 
When he, Jesus, had performed the ritual cleansing for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much greater than the angeloi as the name he had inherited was more distinguished than theirs. Okay, I won't spend a lot of time on this. He just, in a, just a throwaway, offhanded comment, when he had performed the ritual cleansing for sins. He's going to spend two, three chapters on that later in the book of Hebrews. So all he's doing here is anticipating that. Clearly what he has in mind is Jesus' death on the cross and Jesus' death on the cross interpreted as if it were a propitiatory offering offered up to appeal to God for mercy on behalf of his people by a high priest. That's what he's going to argue later in the book of Hebrews is that's how we are to understand the role of his death. Here he just alludes to it. When he had performed the ritual cleansing for sins, what happened? He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much greater than the angeloi as the name he had inherited was more distinguished than theirs. Okay, this is not a geography lesson. He's not telling us where Jesus went when he ascended. That sitting at the right hand of the majesty on high is a metaphor. It's not a literal description. The background to the metaphor is that typically the most important counselor or advisor to a king sat at his right hand. So the king was sitting at the throne, and immediately on his right hand was his most trusted and important advisor, the one who, in effect, was second in command in the kingdom. That's where he would be. So to describe Jesus as seated at the right hand of the majesty on high is another way of describing his status as the son. It's another way of saying he's the heir of all reality. Another way of saying all of history was created for him. Another way of saying that he is the stamp of the very personal identity of God because it's a way of saying in this man Jesus, we have all the authority of God himself residing. There's one and only one being in all of reality that's more important than the Son, and that would be God, the transcendent author of all reality. But short of the transcendent author of all reality, who's obviously the most important being in all of reality, short of that, you can't get any higher. You can't get any more exalted. You can't get any more distinguished and honored than the one who's seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. So what does he mean by when he had performed the ritual of cleansing for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high? What he's alluding to is the fact, and we'll see this later in, in his argument in the book of Hebrews, he's alluding to the fact that although Jesus was destined to inherit all things, he had to qualify for it. He had to run his race and complete his race, and upon completing his race, he was going to receive the reward for the race that he had run and finished. And what was the reward for him? The reward for him was to now be qualified to sit in the place of rule over all of reality on behalf of God and to be the embodiment of God's rule over all of reality. Because he obeyed the way he obeyed, because he loved the way he loved, because he was subservient to the Father in the way he was subservient to the Father, 
he's honored and rewarded with the destiny that had been promised him, to be king of kings and lord over lords over all of reality. That's what it means for him to be seated or to sit down at the right hand of the majesty on high, is, is to represent him as having attained that status and having qualified himself for that, for that destiny. So it's not describing where he is, it's describing the significance of who he is. So, because he's seated at the right hand of the majesty on high, because that's true, what does that mean? He is so much greater than any angelos as his name is greater than their name. He's the son. The angelos is a messenger. That's what angelos means, is messenger. And so Paul is playing with those words, and he's saying, Jesus is the heir of all things, and an angelos is a messenger. It's there that we see how much more exalted Jesus is because of the title that's been given to him. Okay, now what he does in the next several verses is he goes back and quotes Psalms, several passages out of Psalms, to support the claim that Jesus, this ordinary human being, this ordinary man, actually was this son with this distinguished title and this distinguished destiny and status. He's going to prove that from the Psalms. I'm not going to look at that today unless we have time. But once he's done that, then he makes his argument and his exhortation. And to get that, we jump down to chapter 2, verse 1, or it's paragraph 4 in my translation. I call it part 2. So what is his, what's the case that he makes then? For this reason, it is all the more necessary for us to pay attention to what we heard, lest we drift away. Okay, remember the background here. These are Jewish believers who have believed. They've accepted Jesus as the Messiah, but they're beginning to drift away. They're beginning to go, yeah, maybe not. Maybe he wasn't the Messiah. And to abandon their prior confession, their prior commitment to that truth. And what he's saying is, because Jesus is who he is, and because he is who I have just described to you he is, it's all the more necessary that we pay attention to what we heard from him, to the gospel that he taught us. We've got to pay attention to it and not drift away from it. For if the word spoken through angeloi was firm, such that every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, that is, so great a salvation as the one we heard taught to us by Jesus? How do we think God is going to ignore our disregard for that when he didn't disregard the messages that came through the angeloi in the Old Testament? Now, what does he have in mind there? I think probably primarily what he has in mind there is Mount Sinai. The whole covenant, as Paul says in Galatians, the whole covenant was given to us mediated by what he calls angeloi. The mountain that was glowing, the cloud that descended over Mount Sinai, the earthquake that shook the mountain, the, the, uh, the burning bush, you name it. He pulled out all the stops at Mount Sinai to make himself visible in so many different ways, dramatically, supernaturally visible to them. All of those were angeloi. And the tablets were written with the finger of God, right? So the tablets came through an angeloi, 
And can we disregard, can Israel, can the people of Israel disregard the teaching that God delivered to them through his angeloi? No. They went into captivity in Babylon because they disregarded the messages that came to them through the angeloi. There was a just recompense as he puts it, if the word spoken through Angeloi was firm, such that every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation as God has spoken to us through his son? We're dreaming if we think God doesn't care whether we listen to the message that Jesus taught us. We already have a record of how he didn't ignore their transgressions to the Angeloi, so we can extrapolate if that was important and they were just messengers, then you know that the gospel is important because that was spoken through his son, not just one more messenger. That was the son himself who delivered that to us. This salvation, having got its beginning by being spoken through the Lord, was confirmed to us by those who heard, God also testifying with them by both signs and wonders, by various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. Okay, now he's, now he's giving us a whole epistemology for understanding the gospel. How do we know what the gospel is? Well, it came from the Son, our Lord, our Lord, the one who bears the title of the Son, he's the one who delivered, to, delivered it to us in person. Well, how do you and I know that? Well, you and I know that because those people who were the eyewitnesses to it confirmed that that was the message that the Son taught to us. They're the ones that told us, and they were eyewitnesses. So after it was spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard. Well, how do we know they're not charlatans? How do we know that this was not just the biggest fraud ever committed in human history, foisted on mankind? Well, because God also testified with them. He didn't leave it to their credibility. He didn't leave it to our credulity. He confirmed it. He made it evident. He made it manifest with evidence. And what was the evidence? Just as originally he had supported everything the son did by having Jesus perform miracles so that we could know that this guy is not just a joke, God's got his back. The apostles who were representing the teaching of Jesus to us, God had their back as well. So he testified to the veracity of what they were saying by making them perform miracles as well. And all you have to do is read through the book of Acts to see those were pretty spectacular miracles. They rivaled the miracles of Jesus himself, including raising somebody from the dead. And just in a, in a lot of different, lame people walking, blind people seeing, deaf people hearing, uh, dead people coming back to life. Everything that Jesus did, the apostles did. And more accurately, neither Jesus nor the apostles did it. God did it. God did it in the context of Jesus' life so that we might know that he is telling the truth when he says he's speaking for God. And he did it in the ministry of the apostles so that we can know that they are not lying and they are telling the truth when they say, I know what Jesus taught and here's what he taught. 
This is the gospel of salvation that he delivered to us. If you don't believe, if you don't believe me, believe the works that you see. That's how Jesus put it to the Jews. If you don't believe me because I say so, then believe the works that I do. And the apostles could have said something exactly parallel to that. And he gives us a litany, testifying with them both by signs and wonders, by various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit, according to his own will. I've mentioned the miracles. What else were there? He calls them gifts of the Holy Spirit. And what does he have in mind there? He has in mind there, I think, primarily the Pentecostal signs, the gifts that God gave in connection with Pentecost, the speaking in languages that they did not naturally know, the flame of fire dancing over their heads, and the sound of a mighty roaring wind that is inexplicable, an inexplicable sound of a mighty roaring wind. Those things got replicated, not just at Pentecost, but in the house of Cornelius, when Peter was proclaiming the gospel to Cornelius, they got replicated among the Samaritans when the gospel was first proclaimed among the Samaritans, and it got replicated at least, well, I don't know if, all, if that whole thing got replicated, but parts of that got replicated again in various far reaches of the Roman Empire when people were becoming believers who culturally the Jews weren't ready to accept as part of the people of God. Samaritans, they can't be saved. Gentiles, they can't be saved. These other people here, they can't be saved. And God is saying to them, oh yeah, watch me. Yes, they can be saved, and I'm going to give the same gifts of the Holy Spirit to signal the fact, to give a sign of the fact that I am incorporating them in my people just as I gave you a sign that you are being incorporated in my people. So it's by the signs of the Holy Spirit that this message of salvation about Jesus that the apostles delivered were God used those to testify to the fact that this was the truth. This is what was really going on. Okay, I'm going to pause here for your questions in just a second, but let, let me just say something kind of tangentially to that. One of the biggest challenges today within Bible-believing Christianity, and I mean the more conservative Bible-believing branches of Christianity, one of the most challenging things is that it is plagued with the same plague that has plagued Christianity from the beginning. We're constantly going elsewhere to get our ideas and translate the Bible and its ideas into different religious, a different set of religious concepts and beliefs. What prevails in America today in Bible-believing churches is the so-called charismatic movement or Pentecostals or spirit-filled, all that kind of stuff, which is taking a completely alien concept of spirituality, yea, even pagan, Paul calls it explicitly pagan in 1 Corinthians 12, is taking a pagan concept of spirituality and trying to, trying to import that into belief in Jesus in such a way that it completely transforms it into a radically different religion. It's no longer the faith of the apostles. It's not the message of salvation that Jesus taught. It's not the message of salvation that the apostles passed on to us, even though they were the ones doing all the miracles. But why are they doing the miracles? What's interesting about this chapter is we have a really sober, straightforward 
explanation for the role and function of the miraculous in the context of our faith. What was the role of the miraculous? So that we could know the difference between who was authentically and really from God and who was phony and counterfeit. If you come speaking for God, there's always the question, are you really speaking for God truly and authentically, or are you just making junk up? And one of the ways that we, can, we are able to tell the difference is that, as, as Nicodemus said to Jesus, we know you are sent from God because no man can do the things you do unless you are from God. God leaves no mistake when it, about some of the people who are speaking for him. Now, just because you don't perform miracles doesn't mean you're not speaking for God, but it means you're going to have to figure that out some other way because it's not, God is not testifying that that person is for real and is authentic and is not a counterfeit. But if God does testify that they're not a counterfeit, then we dare not dismiss them and ignore them. God himself has spoken. Who am I to reject that and deny that? That was the role of the supernatural. And is that relevant to us today? Absolutely. Why do I read Paul and trust what I'm reading? Because everything about history tells me that he performed these miracles. That God was testifying with him. That he really was the apostle that he claimed to be. When I read Peter's writings, why do I pay attention to them? Because God performed miracles to testify to the veracity of what Peter was saying. Why do I listen to John? Because God performed miracles in conjunction with John's word and God's, uh, John's commands. So because God testified to their authenticity and their veracity, I need to pay attention to them. That's just as true of me today as it was for their contemporaries. It hasn't lost its relevance. In fact, if anything, it has greater relevance to us today because we can't judge them by their character. We're not watching them live their lives. We can't see wisdom at work within them. We don't have any way of knowing firsthand whether they are wise people, but what we do know is God had their back. And because God had their back, I need to credit that for what it's worth. They were speaking for God. Questions? Comments? With a similar way that Paul was, or Jesus for that matter, was performing miracles also be reflected in how, say, Elijah did kind of a show of him versus the prophets of Baal. In terms of the purpose? Yeah, to kind of show how he was from God and the prophets of Baal had no substance at all. Yeah, exactly. That's a great parallel because if you really are a prophet of the God who really is there, then one way for the God who really is there to show that you are a prophet of the God who really is there is to do things that no one else can do and connect them somehow with the prophet Elijah. So Elijah prays and it happens, or Elijah calls out to God and it, and it happens. And notice the priests of Baal are crying out to their gods to make it happen and it doesn't happen. Why? Because all of religion throughout all of time has been based on deceit and trickery and sleight of hand, not reality. So they couldn't pull it off because they didn't have any tricks corresponding to that that they could dazzle the folks with. But Elijah's not doing tricks. Elijah's just saying to God, God, show them, and God shows them. So it's the same logic at work in all the miracles performed by Jesus and the apostles. 
things are happening that are not explainable in terms of deception, trickery, sleight of hand, and so on and so forth. Things that shouldn't be happening are happening at the command or instruction of Jesus or at the command or instruction of an apostle. There's only one explanation. The God who can create ex nihilo has acted and has acted in history to bring about something that breaks the normal course of events in such a dramatic and powerful way that there can be no denying the fact that God has acted. And I think that's the logic of it. And so notice, I mean, I know most of you know this, but just so it's on the record, in every case, it's not Jesus or the apostles. They, they don't have an ability that has been given to them. If they had an ability that's given to them, why can Luke say of Jesus at Nazareth and the power of the Spirit of God was not present for him to perform miracles? That makes no sense if it resides in Jesus. He takes that power with him wherever he goes and he can perform a miracle at his discretion wherever he wants. And I think most Christians in traditional Christianity have got the impression that Jesus was a miracle worker in the sense that God had imparted to him the ability. And obviously most traditional Christians believe he had the ability because he was like God. He was full of divine juice. So of course, if he is actually identical with the divine substance, of course he could perform miracles. But that doesn't explain the apostles. They're not filled with divine juice. How did they perform miracles? The same way Jesus did, who insists every time he gets a chance, I didn't do that. The works that I do, I, I didn't. I don't do them. The Father does them. I don't do them. I don't act on my own initiative. It's the Father who acts. So that's part of the thing that we have to adjust our thinking if we're going to understand the role of miracles. Is this, as, as the text says, this is God testifying of the truth of what they're saying. It's not them out of their own compassion and their own discretion and their own choice doing what they want to do with a power that has been given to them. They're just living their lives obediently to God and God is testifying with them by God using his power to do the inexplicable. I haven't read enough to know if this is universal. But one thing that we've been noticing in Jeremiah and also in Deuteronomy is that, you know, one of the ways that, that is laid out for how you tell if a prophet is false is if they're making claims about what God is up to historically, just watch and see if it actually happens, right? Mm-hmm. So I wonder if, if you could make a distinction between if a prophet is making a theological claim, ex- like extra historical claim, then... The way, to, the way that God's going to verify that is via his power and miracles. But if uh, a prophet is making a historical claim about the narrative that God has in mind, you know, like the Babylonians are going to come and destroy the city, well, all you have to do is wait and see how God, yeah. the creator of history, is, is going to write the narrative. So. Yeah, exactly. The point Colin is making, you, you see that at work in, or they tore a hole in the roof and lowered the, the guy down. You remember what Jesus says is, he says, your sins are forgiven. And then follows that with, so that you know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, I say to you, rise, take up your bed and walk. Well, the forgiveness of sins is ahistorical. It transcends history. I mean, how are you going to prove that his sins were or were not forgiven at the behest of Jesus? There's no empirical evidence one way or the other about that. But you're going to have a lot of empirical evidence for saying, rise, take up your bed and walk. Either he does, and you look good, or he doesn't, and you look like a fool. So he says, I'm going to do the thing that you can verify, but is inexplicable 
if God is not at work. If God is not giving me the authority to do this, then this, this isn't going to happen. But if God is giving me the authority to do this thing that you can verify empirically that it happened, then believe me when I tell you that God has given me the authority to do this thing that you could never verify empirically that it's happened. But the one is intended to be evidence for the other. But if it's history, yeah, all you have to do is wait and see if it's a prediction about the future. And true prophets of God don't get it wrong. They don't get it wrong. Just a technical question. The word they keep translating, angels, how flexible and how broad a meaning can we use that? Because in uh, 1.5, to which of the angels it's translated, to which of the angels did he ever say? And in 2.5, he did not subject to angels the world to come. So can the field of meaning bounce back and forth between the, the angelos of Mount Sinai and the typical understanding of what we call angels, this made-for-purpose being that pops into reality once in a while? It could bounce back and forth. I'm going to argue that it's not here in these first two chapters, with one possible exception in one of the Psalms, and we'll talk about that next week or the week after. Basically, I think this whole, every, everything in the first chapter and a half makes sense if what he means by an angelos is some kind of theophany. And then in the later chapter where he says, many have entertained, quote-unquote, angels unawares. Right. Now that sounds more like that made-for-purpose being or a preacher, a messenger of the true gospel, a true messenger of the true gospel right. who wandered through your community and you were hospitable to them. Yeah, I don't remember what I think about that, so okay. <laughs> let's wait. Till okay, so I'll stand by. Yeah. I always thought that applied to Abraham. Remember Abraham? Yeah, sound, sounds like it, yeah. Most importantly, how do you know that miracles actually happened? How do I know that? You mean these miracles? How do I know that they happened? Okay. Well, logically possible they didn't. Yes, it's logically possible they didn't. But we trust all kinds. I mean, it, it, it's logically possible the Holocaust didn't happen. It's logically possible Antarctica doesn't exist. We know good and well Australia doesn't exist. All kinds of things are logically possible, but we just, you know, we just have to take in the information and make a determination what makes the most sense. That this stuff that they said happened, that people who claim to be eyewitnesses really did happen, or not. And as human beings, the way, we're wi the way in human intelligence is wired is we, the, re the reason we don't starve to death as children is because we believe what other people tell us so that we can get a head start in life. You know, I don't, except for fire, <laughs> we, take everyone else, we take our parents' word for it. Um, let me give you an example. I mean, like language, how do we learn language? If my parents tell me that's a ball, I believe that's the word that our language uses to describe that thing, and so I start using it, and, and it works. What if every time, I don't, know if, I don't know if you're telling me the truth, dude. I don't know if that's a ball or not. Well, so we believe our parents because they're, they're predictably right. Um, well, I, I think we believe them before we even have asked ourselves the question whether they're predictably right. We're just hardwired. It's what Thomas Reed called the principle of credulity as a part of human common sense, as a part of just human intelligence itself. 
is in order to survive together in this world, we believe the testimony of other human beings. That way, my experience is broadened tremendously. Otherwise, I'm limited to my own personal experience. But if I believe other people, all of their experience counts for my experience. It builds my knowledge. And that's the way human intelligence was created by God, to be able to allow us to know stuff. That's why lying is so treacherous. That is why it is such an evil. Precisely because the, the reason lying works is because we are counting on and expecting people to tell us the truth. And when they do a switcheroo on us and tell us a falsehood instead, they have done us a, an incredible evil. I guess when my neighbor tells me that he's seen a miracle, which he does regularly, I am skeptical. You, you what? I'm skeptical. Okay, but isn't there a background to that? I, I mean, I would be skeptical too. And the reason I would be skeptical is because in all of our experience up to this point, the kinds of people who are telling you that they saw a miracle are people who have a vested interest in supporting a worldview that they prefer to believe where they're prepared to see a miracle everywhere they turn. Whether it was a miracle or not is kind of irrelevant to them. They're prepared to see it as a miracle. Well, I don't buy that worldview. And I learned through experience that one of the things that skews human testimony is a worldview bias. And because I know that a worldview bias skews human testimony, that puts me on guard. So one of the things I'm always going to ask myself is if that doesn't inherently fit into my experience and my worldview such that I, I just take it for granted that you're telling me the truth, if that little light that goes on going, something's funky here, something's wrong here, one of the things I ask is, is there a worldview bias happening here? And if there is, then I remain skeptical. We'll see. Maybe, maybe not. I'm skeptical. I think that's intelligent to be that way and to respond in that way because we have learned through experience to be cautious about certain kinds of testimony in certain kinds of context. But for some reason you believe Paul when he says that miracles happened? I do. That's what I want to know. Okay. Well, boy, I don't know if I can even outline all the reasons behind it, but one big part of it for me is I've been a student of Paul for decades now, and I think I know his mind, I think I know how his mind works. I think I know his character. I think I know his heart. So it's, it's as best as you can through writings rather than in person. So I would judge him the same way I would judge you. Does he shoot straight? Or is, is this guy a snake oil salesman who's, who's really trying to peddle something? Ron was taking us through Second Corinthians. What was Paul getting out of this? <laughs> if, if he wasn't a straight shooter and his agenda was something other than just simply serving the truth of the gospel that had been delivered to him, what did he get out of it? He got beaten, he got rejected, he got held in contempt, he got mocked, he caused riots everywhere he went. I mean, the guy had, from a physical standpoint, had a not exactly pleasant life. And he would have made it a whole lot pleasanter if he just said, Jesus, Jesus, this is... <laughs> This is just not for me. He could have made his life so much more pleasant. Why didn't he? Because he was confident and convinced that he had a mission, that this was the truth, this was the vital truth that all of mankind needs to know, and he needed to take it to them. Well, okay, 
Now, was he confident because he was a fool and an idiot? Or was he confident because he really, it was really the truth? Well, for me, after decades of reading him, whatever he is, he's not a fool and an idiot. His confidence is well-founded and it's well-grounded. So it's those kinds of things. Another thing is, Paul explains his gospel. He puts his gospel in the context of all kinds of insights into human experience. And those are empirically verifiable to me. Part of his gospel makes sense because of his concept of moral depravity. Do I empirically believe in and experience his insight into the depravity of human beings? Yeah. And I don't mean just in you. I mean in me. What he describes as the experience of human beings with respect to goodness and righteousness and and truth, for that matter, I see it at work in every bone of my body. So... There's sort of an independent verification, if you will, that the guy knows what he's talking about. Because as he develops all this and explains all this and explores all that stuff with me, I can see for myself, my own experience, the truthfulness of it. That's huge for me. If his whole gospel was founded on some kind of fairy tale that just didn't make any sense in my life, I wouldn't be so inclined to believe him. And like it or not, that's why my journey has been the way that it has been. I mean, I think evangelicalism taught me all kinds of fairy tales about who Jesus was and what he did and didn't do and so on, and it wasn't working for me because what they said was true was not true of my experience. And it started me thinking, did Paul really teach that? Was he really saying that? And I think I would have been prepared to say, if he really was teaching that, in view of the fact that my own experience tells me it's not true, why am I trusting this guy? But what I found instead is that he had been misinterpreted, badly misinterpreted, grossly misinterpreted. And that when we find out what Paul was really saying and what he's really teaching and what he's really thinking, all of a sudden that resonates, that rings true. It's grounded, it's real life. It's with both feet on the ground. It's not this dancing in the wind, ungrounded above reality that so much of Christian culture can get into. That's really helpful. And I could probably keep going, but it's it's a very personal decision. I mean, it takes all the resources available to finally answer that question. It's what I know about history. It's what I know about philosophy. It's what I know about everything, my own personal inward experience. All that stuff comes into play. And am I going to trust these guys in this message? Thank you very much. Mm -hmm. The plagues in Egypt, when Moses said whatever it was that turned the sea to blood and so on, or the <laughs> river to blood, in some instances the Egyptians copied mm-hmm. copied those things. Was that just like trickery? I mean, was it? I, do you think I, that's inclined, what it was? Now, maybe I'm wrong. I, I might be wrong about this, but I I'm inclined to think that a genuine supernatural act can only be performed by God. I don't think Satan, whoever that is, can do that. What he can do, I don't know. I don't understand Satan's relationship to us, but I don't, I don't think he can create ex nihilo. I think it was you, Logan, so bail me out here, but somewhere along the line I read or I heard that if you take a cobra, there are people who have learned to, there's a certain pressure point on a cobra that if you press on it 
a kind of temporary rigor mortis sets in on the cobra. So it looks like you have a staff. It's actually a cobra, but it looks like you're walking down the, the road with a staff. So whenever you want to dazzle somebody, you go, taking the pressure off, it's now a cobra. So people have the appearance that you've turned a staff into an actual living snake when it's exactly, actually, actually the opposite of that. You've taken a snake and made it look like a, an inanimate staff temporarily. So notice that Moses' cobra eats their, their cobras. I don't know how they might have done the... Uh, the I think David was suggesting that the, uh, the turning the Nile to red could have just been their, their knowledge to be able to predict the algae bloom in the Nile. Is that, is that what you've proposed is a possibility? And what else did they replicate? They, they couldn't do this stuff. Yeah, it got to a point where they couldn't, couldn't do it any longer. Is anything I've said true, or am I making, <laughs> am I making that? <laughs> Check me out, but I, that's what I've heard. So if that's the case, then up to a point, they were using their trickery, and then God surpassed what they were able to, to replicate with their trickery. I just had a quick comment to piggyback on Sam's. We've been studying the uh, beginnings of Islam, and one thing that struck me, you know, Muhammad goes into a cave and comes out and proclaims this new religion. Or, you know, Joseph Smith. It came just to him. And the thing that the Bible has going for it is we have dozens, if not hundreds, if not thousands of literal eyewitnesses who can... Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. testify to the truth of many of the things that happened. So. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, as Paul puts it to Festus, he says, these things didn't happen in a corner. <laughs> the whole nation's talking about them. Could you say a little more about worldview bias? I'm, I guess I'm assuming that we all have a worldview bias. It's sure. impossible to not have that, so... Could you explain more? Yeah, and, what we're and of course, for? I readily identify your worldview bias. I'm, I'm, I'm not so able to identify my own. But, but yeah, like in the, in the circumstances that Sam was talking about, it could work both ways. The neighbor could have a worldview bias that's making him see things that aren't actually happening, and his worldview bias could make him put him in a position where he couldn't possibly ever see what actually did happen. I mean, it can work both ways. And that's what we have to decide. So which is the truth? Which set of lenses allows me to focus on what's actually there and see what's actually there? And what set of lenses blurs the picture so that I can't see what's really there? And that always what we're doing is looking for the right set of lenses to look at things through. There's no such thing as looking at reality through no set of lenses. We're going to be looking at it through a set of lenses, so which is the right one? Which is the one that really gets me reality as it actually is, in clear focus? There's more to your question, though. Well, no, I think you've addressed it. I, the way you said it before made me think that you were saying that if we identify that whatever someone else is saying, that there's worldview bias at work there, 
then it would be clear to us that we could disregard it or whatever. But yeah, but we yeah. all have that. So yeah, we, no, it's not. It's not that because there's worldview bias, we can disregard what somebody else is saying. But if there's worldview bias, that's a reason why I'm going to be skeptical. The atheist should be skeptical about any claim I make. Now, in the long run, should he get over his skepticism and believe the truth of the gospel? I think so. But, but if he's an intelligent human being, his first response should be to be skeptical because everything I'm saying doesn't fit into his worldview. Yeah. So I would expect him to be skeptical. There'd be something wrong with him if he weren't skeptical. But in the final analysis, we don't leave it at skepticism. We have to decide, am I going to credit my skepticism with having identified something that's false that I should reject? Or, yes, I'm skeptical, but is this challenging me to rethink my whole worldview? And that we should always go that next step. And there's something very short-sighted if I just take my skeptical response as the end of the matter. Okay, so I, I don't have to believe it because I'm skeptical. Yeah, thank you. That's, yeah. that's what I wanted to know. Okay. I've always found it a little interesting that, that the miracles that are talked about in the scripture, not all of them, but some of them seem to me that if you were there and witnessed them, it was really easy to see what had happened. A person with a withered arm, a person with crippled legs, someone with leprosy. Leprosy on people's arms and faces and play very visible. And when those people were made whole, how could you possibly miss it? Yeah. yeah. Now I have, I'm older than I'd like to admit, and I've watched a few televangelists, clear back to Oral Roberts' days. I have never seen that happen. Who ever came up on the stage of one of these guys who their whole believe in me and send me money program mm -hmm. has ever had somebody whose arm is gone and it comes back, whose leprosy can be shown close up by the cameraman, mm -hmm. and then it's clean. Mm -hmm. It simply has not happened. And as an old friend of mine, I don't know if you knew, did you know George Bryson when he yeah, was a pastor yeah. here? Mm -hmm. He used to get lots of questions on that front. And his answer always was, praise the Lord that you've seen it. I have never seen it. And if I haven't seen it, I can't put my trust in it. If you need to because you believe you've seen it, then you have to go for it. And it was just the same with people, because there's another whole camp there, or part of the same camp, who's the God told me people. And they base everything that they want you to believe on, well, God told me. Well, you can't argue a person out of that. If that's what they really believe, that's what they really believe. But George's answer was always, God never told me that. If he does, then I'll probably be with you. But he has not ever told me that. Yeah. And you just finally, I think, like with Sam's neighbor, you have to get to that point where you say, he needs to go his merry way with the things he's putting his trust in. But until Sam <laughs> sees one that really is verifiable, he cannot deny it happened, then I don't think he's under any obligation to say with his neighbor, I got to put my trust in those things. Yeah, thank you. I'll tell you one anecdote, personal experience. I was uh, just a beginning Bible 
Bible teacher. I was uh, in charge of the college youth group at First Baptist Church in Salem one summer as an, an internship. And within this college age group was a young woman who actually lived in a nursing home. Her physical needs were so great and, and she had been basically abandoned by her family. So she had been relegated to her nursing home and that's where she lived. And she was an emotional black hole, understandably, I mean, given, given her past experience. Literally an emotional black hole. There's just no amount of love you could give her that just didn't get you know, sucked right out of you. This will date me, but Catherine Kuhlman was coming to town in Portland and she took a bus up with some other people who wanted to go see Catherine Kuhlman and show that she went to Catherine Kuhlman. Catherine Kuhlman was a faith healer evangelist back in the day. And while she was there, one of this young woman's problems was she had severe diabetes. And so during the service, Catherine Kuhlman got a word of knowledge that there was somebody out there who had diabetes. Oh, that's a surprise. Someone out there has diabetes, and God has told me that they're going to be healed. Okay, so this, this young woman, and recognize she's an emotional black hole, this young woman decided it was she. She was the one who God had decided was going to heal. So she went up the next night, and in front of thousands, tens of thousands of people at the Memorial Coliseum or wherever it was, and in front of tens of thousands of people, went forward at the invitation of Catherine Kuhlman for people to come and give their testimony and declared to people, Catherine Kuhlman got a word last night about someone being healed of their diabetes. That was me. I have thrown away my insulin. Praise God, I'm healed. And, you know, everyone cheers. And as far as everyone knows, and I would say being instantaneously healed of diabetes, it's not exactly the same as leprosy, but it's significant. That's a pretty significant thing. So as far as everyone is concerned, a really significant thing has happened. But they weren't in the hospital room <laughs> watching her in a coma three days later. And so the story that gets told is, I went to Catherine Kuhlman crusade, and there's all kinds of miracles happen. There was this woman who, you know, well, that wasn't true. It didn't happen. And, and they say, well, okay, but there are so many. If even one of them is true, I agree. If even one of them was true, but every last one of them is tenuous. It's all hearsay. I'll tell you one more story. A young man that I, that I knew by several decades ago, he was going to a vineyard weekend, a weekend where the vineyard movement, back in the day, they had miracle workshops, seminars, like can't remember retreats, I can't remember what they called them, but where you went just expecting miracles and all kinds of miracles happened. So I was very interested in what, he, what his experience was, so I asked him, uh, so did, what, what happened? He said, oh, wow, all kinds of miracles happened this weekend. Really? Okay, he had my attention. Okay, did you see any? Well, I didn't personally see any, but my friend, my friend saw, I mean, already we've gone from an eyewitness testimony of just a whole lot of miracles to, no, I'm not an eyewitness to any, but my friend was an eyewitness to, to some, to, to one. I said, okay, well, so what was that? Well, a woman who didn't have any toes grew toes. Okay, that had my attention. That's kind of on the order of leprosy. And I said, oh, okay, so are you saying that your friend saw the woman's foot without toes? before the miracle, 
and then saw the woman's foot after the miracle with toes? Is that, is that what your friend saw? His, his response, I'll never forget it. Oh, yeah, sure. I mean, he must have. I mean, it's it just, he must have. That is, if he told me that, why would he have told me that if he didn't have a basis for it? And what other basis could you have for it except actually being an eyewitness to that? And there's, there's worldview bias. If I'm prepared to believe that I'm at a seminar where those kinds of things are happening, the, uh, the evidence that I would normally require for myself, I don't need that any longer because this is, this is so working hand-in-glove with my worldview, I don't really need evidence for it. Well, I'm a skeptic. I need evidence, so I want you to give me evidence that this actually happened. Well, I, basically, when it came right down to it, I went to the seminar and just hundreds of things happened to, there was no eyewitness, you can't give me an eyewitness testimony of any, by anybody. I, it's that kind of power of hearsay that keeps that credible, keeps those kinds of claims credible in our, in our culture and in, in Christianity. Yeah, and it, yeah. Yeah, it keeps the checks coming, yeah. Okay, I, we're about out of time. So the argument here is, in the last days God spoke to us through his son, we dare not ignore him. He spoke through his son, God testified with him, testifying to the veracity of what the son and the apostles were teaching, and we dare not ignore that. This is the most important message spoken by the most important being in all of reality. We better pay attention. That's the exhortation. Now, what we're going to look at next week, we'll begin to look at it, but, but we'll just go back and look at the Old Testament background first behind the Psalms, and then either next week or the week after that, we'll actually look at the, the evidence that he gives us out of the Psalm. And the evidence is intended by Paul to support his claim that you can't get any more important than this ordinary mortal human being, the Son. And the Psalms are going to teach us that. So that's what we'll look at next week. Let's pray. Father, human existence is treacherous in so many ways. We can be affected by disease and defect and pain and suffering of all kinds. And we can be lied to and misled and led astray by all kinds of false ideas. Lord, it, it just a, it's a miracle that any of us ever find you and ever stay the course in our belief. And we just ask you that you would have mercy upon us and give us the grace to see the beacon of light that shines forth from your Son, that we might follow it and it, it alone. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.